This is The Woman Behind the Business, featuring honest dialogue that advances and inspires women entrepreneurs. Now, here's your host, Angel Nicole. We've all got a pair, but are we properly caring for our breasts? That's what we're discussing this week on The Woman Behind the Business. You know me, I'm your host, Angel Nicole, and today's conversation around breast health is definitely a subject that's near and dear to my heart. Last year, my mom was diagnosed with two rare forms of breast cancer, triple negative stage four and inflammatory stage three. I'm sure I'm not the only one that has had a close family member touched by the big C. However, it's a conversation that is always good to have. Joining me to delve into this much-needed conversation is breast surgeon, Dr. April Spencer of Dr. April Spencer's Global Breast Health and Wellness Center. As a breast expert, she provides 100% breast services to women, men, and adolescents. She's a member of the American Society of Breast Surgeons, the Society of Surgical Oncology, and the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Welcome to the show, Dr. April. April Spencer, full name. Now, there are so many places um, we're going to go throughout this conversation, but I want to start here. What exactly is breast health and is it only relevant when discussing breast cancer? The bottom line is if you see something, say something. If anything that's different, make sure you let your primary care provider know um, instead of waiting until there's an issue. That way we can be very proactive because the bottom line is early detection means better protection. So it's just knowing your own breast anatomy. Mm. So doing regular exams so you understand, oh, this is a normal like lymph node versus this is a not. Is that what you mean? That's precisely what I mean. Um, I'm sure, Angel, your mom may have been told to do her monthly breast exams. And, but we're really getting away from the um, just routine monthly breast exams because usually when you are thinking of doing a monthly breast exam, what do you think usually comes to mind for most women in terms of what they're looking for? They don't want to look for nothing. They don't want to find anything. <laughs> that is true. So a lot of people do avoid it because mm-hmm. they're afraid of what they might find. But when they are looking for something, what what have you found, like with your mom or with your friends that or they're myself. looking for? Yeah, I think it's looking for like an enlargement or a um, like a lump. Absolutely, and and that's that that is what has been problematic because a lot of women that don't engage in breast health, which includes knowing your own anatomy will focus just on a breast lump and associate that with the only thing that is considered abnormal, the only thing that they should call their doctor about. But did you know that nipple discharge can be a sign of breast cancer? A rash on the breast can be a sign of breast cancer? A lump underneath the armpit can be a sign of breast cancer? So what we found is that a lot of women were ignoring things in their breasts outside of a lump because they felt like, oh, you know, it's not a lump, so it must be okay. When in fact, oftentimes, it may be breast cancer. So breast awareness is a big part of breast health and having a conversation before a diagnosis of breast cancer. So I'm so glad you broached that uh, difference. So let me ask you this, because I feel like two items that you mentioned um I've personally never have heard as signs or symptoms, right? So 
you know, like nipple discharge. For me, I felt like the only time I've even heard any type of discharge from the nipple, and this may just be my ignorance, is like if you have a nipple ring um, or some type of piercing and you may have like a discharge. But are there other times where, I mean, clearly, if you're saying that it's a potential symptom or a sign of breast cancer that you can have discharge from the breast? Yes. And so... Sometimes when women are lactating, we are very familiar with having nipple discharge or if we have uh, decorative jewelry in the breast. You said what kind of jewelry? We are very, like decorative jewelry, like oh, uh, oh, nipple oh. ring. Okay. Uh-huh. Can be associated with discharge uh, right after piercings or if there's an infection. But whenever the nipple discharge is in the breast and it comes out on its own, meaning it's not associated with the nipple piercing, meaning it comes out without you pressing or without nursing, what we call spontaneous nipple discharge. That can be a red flag in the breast. Mm. Um, That could represent a tiny breast cancer behind the nipple that's obstructing the duct and the, the irritation of that obstruction causes bleeding. So some women will have bloody nipple discharge, but clear nipple discharge can be problematic as well. So it's not necessarily the color that matters, Mm -hmm. but the fact that it comes out on its own. Mm -hmm. And usually when it's just on one side is when we get concerned. So those are the things that I want the listeners to be mindful of um, in terms of making sure they let their doctor know about any nipple discharge that comes out on its own and um, and it is associated with just the one side. Now, the other thing that you had mentioned is the rash on the breast. I think, you know, sometimes people, I you know, I I don't know if it's that we just naturally make excuses for why something may happen. You know, you might see a little rash and you may be like, oh, it must be this new detergent that I'm using. Or maybe it's this bra was too tight. You know, what do these rashes typically look like? Are they bumpy? Is it a different skin um, color? Are they hot? Like, what are some of those things that we should look for? as it relates to the rash? As it relates to the rash, um, the thing that we should look for is if that rash doesn't get better and it grows where it encompasses usually about 75% of the breast. Mm. But with the initial onset of the rash, a lot of people go to their dermatologist to their primary care and they'll put them on some sort of steroid cream or anti-itch cream or even antibiotics depending on what the rash may look like. But if it doesn't get better over the course of, let's say, 30 days, I would not recommend continuing with antibiotics and or the cream. I would recommend a, um, imaging, the mammogram and possible ultrasound, and if it's abnormal, a biopsy. Mm. Because it could be a sign of inflammatory breast cancer, which does not present as a lump. It's just a rash and swelling of the breast. Right. And that's one of the breast cancers that my mom was diagnosed with last year. And thank God. And you and I have had this conversation like, you right. know, she's 100 percent cancer free from both the mm-hmm. triple negative and the the inflammatory. But even the inflammatory, I had never even heard that there was a such thing as inflammatory. But then to learn about it's it. Very rare. Very rare. Right. But then to hear about it and to know that when most men and women who are diagnosed with inflammatory, like by the time you even realize that you have it, typically it's like stage three, stage four. So 
with that, why did you decide to become a breast surgeon? So it's one of those uh, kind of career pivots in a very interesting time in my um, surgical journey. I was doing trauma surgery at a level one trauma center called Gray Hospital, which is a very busy um, trauma center in Atlanta, Georgia, mm-hmm. in the inner city in the height of <laughs> the crack epidemic and war, um, like the whole war on drugs and mm-hmm. gangs were prevalent. So it was very, very dangerous time, but a very busy time. And I learned a lot, saved a lot of lives, but a lot of those patients I wanted to develop a relationship with, but I did not see them again until they were shot the next summer. And a lot of those would be OA or dead on arrival. And I felt like it would be a more meaningful use of my surgical time in the oncology space so that I can develop relationships with these women and their families throughout their discovery journey, not just a one-and-done procedure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there were two women that I saw that helped to influence that decision. Um, mm -hmm. One was like 25 and the other one was 24. And I diagnosed them both with breast cancer on the same day. Mm. And one lived and one died. And um, we all were the same age. and, And I just felt like there needed to be someone that really had a vested personal and professional interest in seeing these women not just survive, but thrive. Mm -hmm. And the one that died was so angry that she was told she had a um, a breast uh, abscess for over a year. And by the time I did a biopsy, it had already spread to her spine. Wow. And she didn't have any knowledge of her family history because she was adopted. She was so upset about it. And I said, well, and so was I. But I said, I can't get upset. I've got to do something about it. And then the other young lady... Everyone in her family essentially died of breast cancer, including her mother, when she was 10 years old. And I said, not on my watch. You are not your mother. You're not your aunt. You're not your cousin. You're not all these people that have died of breast cancer at an early age. So we had very aggressive treatment with her, and she is surviving and thriving to this day. And so those were the two women that influenced my decision to go from doing trauma surgery to breast surgical oncology. Now, besides early detection, what would you say are some of the key elements for recently diagnosed patients to be able to keep kind of front and center as they go through the process? Because I feel like once you hear that news, like it it takes literally so much out of you. And yeah, for I, sure. And I've gone through it several times. Like, you know, on my dad's side of the family, it runs very prevalent. This was my mom's mm-hmm. second time having it. And so I've witnessed how it truly impacts family, but also the individual. So what are some of those things that like you've seen that kind of makes the difference between, you know, the people who kind of come out like on top? Is it like a mentality thing? Is it like how they just you know, go throughout the process or is it their support system? Like what are some of those things that you've seen have been beneficial? The main thing is having a really good support around you. The second thing is to make sure you 
follow up and follow through because I think sometimes people allow the fear to paralyze them and they'll do nothing or they'll delay any treatment recommendations where you really need to get in the driver's seat very early on and put, you know, make sure you have that support so you can very bravely get through the uh, recommendations. And then thirdly, I would also be very proactive asking about any clinical trials that the individual may qualify for because sometimes a clinician may not be aware of the clinical trials and have to research it. And so it's important to be your own advocate and mention it very early on. Uh, the mistake that a lot of people make is they wait until they're not responding to treatment to inquire about a clinical trial. So clinical trials is definitely one of the areas we're going to hit on um, because oftentimes minorities are not represented in clinical trials. And it's funny because I don't think that our population truly understands that when it comes to these prescription drugs, that the majority of the people that are encompassed in these clinical trials are white males. I believe it's about 95% white male mm-hmm. or European male. And so with that being said, you know, I don't want to do a clinical trial when I need the trial. I want to, you know, potentially be a part of a clinical trial like, you know, early on or looking at my family history and being able to say, okay, like this might be something I'm in need of. But across the board, when it comes to any prescription drugs, like we have to do better in being a part of that conversation and being a part of, you know, what these medications, how how our bodies are able to metabolize these medications. So what are some of the pointers that you would give for people to get out and start being actively involved in clinical trials? Well, first ask that they, again, talk to their clinician about any clinical trials they may qualify for. And then there are a lot of resources that are online uh, that are reputable um, through the uh, U.S. government where we fund clinical research through the National Institute of Health that is uh, readily available where you can just put in a condition and then all the clinical trials in your area that's associated with your zip code and that condition will come up. When people participate in clinical trials, let me rephrase this, are people typically compensated or is this something I just got to yes. take the time to do it? Because I think that's no, the other it's area. compensated because we do understand as a scientist the time that it takes to participate mm. is taken away from time that a person may be actively working. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have been the principal investigator, meaning the person running a trial in the past. And I've seen firsthand how the study participants are very committed and they're there for whatever amount of time we need them. But the time that they're there helping us answer scientific questions is also time away from their job inside or outside the home. Mm. And so we have to accommodate them with uh, compensation. Right. Now, I'm guessing that the compensation ranges, um, but on average, like what, like if somebody is like, yo, I'm out of work right now, this might be a viable (laughs) solution for me if I am an an eligible candidate for a clinical trial. Like what is the like pay range? Is it like $50? Is it thousands of dollars? 
anywhere from $500 to do a survey because all clinical trials doesn't involve consuming medication. Mm-hmm. Some may be just filling out a survey. Uh, others may just be observing. Some may be watching something and giving you assessment to $1,000 per visit. So it, it you know just varies on what's being studied. But it's okay. not something that would likely be able to support or replace someone's primary career or mm-hmm. job. Right. No, of course. Because they can't be coercive, and that would go against the ethical issues that we have in place. Exactly. Now, for your particular clinic, if someone doesn't have breast cancer, does your facility provide reconstruction surgery, breast lifts, or any of those services? What my clinic provides is clearing the breast in preparation for those because what no plastic surgeon wants to do a breast lift or breast reduction, they send the tissue because it's required. Any tissue that's removed in the breast has to be sent to the pathologist only to be told that, hey, this patient actually had cancer. Mm. So we, they would come to me to get their breast cleared, and then I would refer them to a plastic surgeon for that clearance. Um, and if they, in the absence of any obvious breast cancer. So I just clear the breast. And so it's helpful for any of your listeners to be mindful if they're thinking about getting cosmetic surgery done to just make sure that they've gotten or have a current mammogram. Mm-hmm. And if they're not at the mammogram age, which usually starts anywhere from 35 to 40, that they just see a doctor to make sure they have a clinical breast exam done Mm -hmm. and that the breasts are within normal before they get their cosmetic procedure. So when you say you clear the breast, can you run that through for me again? Um, Like what what exactly does that mean? Clearing the breast is doing a clinical breast exam to see if I see or feel anything abnormal that could suggest a breast cancer or the need for a workup for breast cancer. And it also involves imaging on women that are of imaging, screening imaging age, over 40, and I will order a mammogram. Now, if they've had a mammogram already, it will involve me reviewing that mammogram to assess if there was any abnormalities on the mammogram and or on the ultrasound. Okay. I think I got it this time. Okay. (laughs) All right. So now before we take a quick break, I want to do kind of like a quick fire challenge where I'll ask you a couple different questions. um, But if you can give me like your, you know, first response or, you know, the stigmas that kind of like are around these questions, that would be great. All right. You ready? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. All right, so should we sleep in a bra? Yes or no? Whatever's comfortable for you. But it's not a requirement, so I have to say no. (laughs) Okay, so I think this is like one of those things where I think, okay, actually goes into the next question. Underwire or no underwire? And does it make a difference? It does not make a difference. In people that don't have irritation in their breast. So if the person has irritation in the breast, it does make a difference. But if you have normal breasts without bouts with rashes underneath or irritation underneath in the pad, it doesn't matter. Okay, so going going back to number one, right? The Mm -hmm. bra or no bra. Okay, so I believe that there is this 
maybe it's an old wives tale that if you sleep mm-hmm. in a bra, you ain't gonna have saggy boobs. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true or false? Whether you sleep, it's false. It's false because our breasts tend to go south as we age because of estrogen reduces goes down, and it's the estrogen that keeps our breasts lifted. Like the Lord, high and lifted up. As <laughs> she goes, the breath goes out with it. So, saggy boobs has nothing to do with uh, bra support? Is that what I'm hearing? That is what you're hearing. What? Yeah. That is very interesting. Okay. Yeah. So... Do they have estrogen pills then? So, like, if you start popping, like, some estrogen pills, like, does that keep the boobs up? Because I also feel like, you know, they say the heavier your breasts are, the more likely they are to droop as well. So, it has nothing to do with gravity. It's just about how much estrogen's in my body. Well, it has a lot to do with gravity. In terms of gravity, we'll pull the breasts out. But the estrogen hormone is responsible for the stroma, which is the structural, it's what holds our breasts up. And so as we age, we make less of that hormone. So our breasts tend to become replaced by fat, like the supporting tissue is replaced by fat, just like our entire body. Our muscles start to get thinner and replaced with more fat than um, structure. So what happens in our breast happens to our bodies as we age. Um, in terms of hormone replacement, we usually don't recommend doing it past five years because high dose estrogen, unfortunately, can increase our risk of breast cancer later. Mm. So we just got to have saggy boobs. No, you're going to have a good plastic surgeon. To do a lift? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If it can be done safely, safely and you're healthy, it's definitely an option to consider if the sagginess is a concern. So that goes into the third question, boob jobs. For those who might just want to lift, how safe are those and what's the process? Yeah, the lifts are quite safe. Um, the, the risk of surgery is not the actual surgical cutting or dissecting or lifting. It's the anesthesia that we have to be mindful of. Mm. So as long as someone can tolerate anesthesia, meaning they haven't had any severe problems with the heart and lungs, what would be considered severe? A heart attack within the last six months, Um, seeing a pulmonologist on a regular basis for like um, sleep apnea or having to sleep with an oxygen machine, a chronic smoker, uh, someone that was very obese because they would have problems with wound healing. Mm. Um, But from an anesthesia standpoint, a lot of women may have had some things that were going with their heart or lungs, Angel, that make it difficult or challenging to put them to sleep and wake them up safely. Mm. So those are the things we have to consider. Okay, so then what's the process for the lift? It's just tugging the skin up and, like, stitching it and making, like, what are we doing? Well, the first thing is usually there is surgical clearance to make sure it's safe for the patient to be put to sleep mm-hmm. and they don't have any issues, major issues with their heart and lungs or any issues clotting or wound healing. And then once they pass that test, uh, from a surgical standpoint, we proceed. Uh, there's an incision made usually underneath the breast and the uh, position is uh, of the nipple is 
um, moved to accommodate the breast being higher up, and then tissue is taken out of the breast and, and sent to pathology. And the patient's recovery is usually about two to four weeks, and they'll wear the bra for 24 hours or, or a binder. I know you asked bra, no bra, but 24 hours if you've had surgery. Mm-hmm. And then they'll come back and see their plastic surgeon and we'll look at the incision to make sure the wounds look good and to make sure there's no sign of infection. So wait, to do the lift, they actually take tissue out? Yes. Yeah, so we have to take some tissue out because we're moving some things around. So a little bit of tissue is removed and rearranged. Okay. But you still your cup size. Yes. Okay. And then, like, what's the healing process and, and um, a general price range? Yeah, the healing process is usually, you know, two to four weeks. And the price range could be anywhere from, you know, $2,500 to upwards of 10000 depending on what else is being done and what plastic surgeon you're seeing. Very interesting. Y'all, I just learned a whole lot. <laughs> that was that was so good. Um, all right. So we are speaking with Dr. Amber Spencer, founder of Dr. Amber Spencer's Global Breast Health and Wellness Center based in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, when we come back, we'll continue the conversation to learn a little more about the woman behind the white coat. Stay with us. Get through it, I pray I know I can reach you and I go 
Welcome back to the Women Behind the Business Talk Show. I'm your host, Angel Nicole, and we have been speaking with Dr. April Spencer, the breast doctor. So, April, we are going to talk a little bit about you. I want to know, how do you maintain your self-care? How do you balance it all as mom and breast surgeon? Um, That's an an important question to always keep on the forefront of our mind. Um, Because as women, a lot of us are mothers. Some of us work inside or some of us work outside the home. But many of us associate self-care with just hair, nails, and girl strips. And I try to make sure I do all those things, but on a daily basis or on a frequent basis, just try to be very protective of my peace. So I'm very mindful of um, where I am and who I'm with. And um, just try to have a really good time with people that add value uh, to my life. And to, for those that are respectful of my time, because if you don't respect my time, you don't deserve to have any of it. So I just make sure I'm always around people that are positive, where I'm laughing as much as possible, where I'm learning as much as possible, where I'm loving as much as possible. And that is what helps me refill my cup. And what does that look like? Spending quality time with family and friends, traveling, um, even having staycations. And uh, just make sure that I make adjustments if I find myself around individuals or situations that is not adding value, is not having good energy, I will fire fast and hire slow. Amen. Not just as relates to my business, but in my personal life as well. Right. And I'm going to run something back that she said because it was all facts. She said, if you don't respect my time, then you don't deserve to have it. And I think a lot of times we try to make excuses for people's behaviors and Mm -hmm. we try to accommodate those that have been in our lives for a long time. And so Mm -hmm. we accept behavior that we would never accept from an outsider, from people because we care about them. And I think sometimes we just have to be reminded that you know, your time is still valuable. You're still valuable and you matter. And if you can't respect me and show me the love and the dignity that I continuously mm-hmm. give you, then why are you, why do you even think that you're worthy to be in my space? And yeah. so I appreciate you for sharing that because I think, you know, a lot of times people say, you know, I have to, I have to honor my peace. I have to, yeah, but what does that mean? So I, I love that, that you bro- like? exactly. I love that you broke that down to you gonna respect me, and if you don't, then you don't deserve to breathe the same air that I'm breathing in my space. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Now, yeah. how has it been? Um, you know, teaching and growing and grooming your child. Um, in an era where, you know, it's definitely still, I feel like the era of the woman and showing and proving that like women, we can do any and everything and men can too. Cause you know, I got two little boys. So how do you encourage that with your, with your child? In terms of how I encourage or inspire my daughter 
to be like a confident individual is I often remind her that I am raising adults, not children. Mm-hmm. And so I try my best to put her in scenarios that will help increase her confidence. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what that looks like is she would be in some what some would call adult situations where I'll have her interact with some of seeing me with my patients. I may have difficult conversations with family or friends about an issue. And instead of saying, that's for grown folks, I would ask, what would you do here, Taylor? You know, I talked to my cousin and this is going on. You know, what advice would you give her? Just so she can feel confident and that her opinion is matters, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and she's aware that the female species sometimes is the most disrespected and the least protected out of all. Come on, So she's got to be mindful of her place in the world and to not allow other people to define that for her, that she's capable and she's the best of the best of the best because she has to be. And estrogen is her superpower. (laughs) And her breast's worst friend after she gets a little older. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So that actually is a beautiful explanation. Um, and a lot of those things are very similar to what I do. And I think it's part of um, introducing our children to the entrepreneurial journey and what that is, mm-hmm. what it looks like and the struggles, but also the blessings that go along with it. And so it actually also answers the question of who Taylor made is named after, um, <laughs> which is your makeup brand. Talk to us a little bit about how you entered into the makeup space. Um, how I entered into TaylorMade Cosmetics is I was looking at my patients as my board of directors and my daughter as my inspiration. And she is a children of natural scientist. So she would ask questions about pigments. She would ask questions about how reactions take place and how do you know what's safe in terms of what is cancer caused and what's not. And that is what would inspire me, just her natural curiosity to do things better but in a scientific way. And then it was my patient that wanted to feel better. And the bottom line is when you look good, you feel better. Mm-hmm. It's not about vanity, it's sanity. And that is the reality. And I had so many patients to say, I want to leave here and go get some lipstick, or I want to make safer consumer choices. What's a good brand of makeup or skincare that's not carcinogenic that I can start using after my diagnosis? Oh, I've never been diagnosed. I just want to be a more savvy consumer and try to be safer in my choices. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot out there that was still simple and safe, but sexy. Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of things that are safe, but the pigment wasn't what it needed to be. Mm. Um, Some labels had great pigment, but patients felt like they looked like, did not look like themselves. (laughs) (laughs) And so I needed something that could be a good blend of sexy and science. Mm-hmm. and safety. And so that's how I came up with the uh, Made Cosmetics. Yeah. I love it. So you guys definitely have to check out her website and get some of the TaylorMade Cosmetics if you um, have great breast health. And, and I feel like they're, at some point in time, I kind of am going to foreshadow here, um, will be like videos and information um, of different things that you can do like for your health. We are winding down 
uh, with our interview. So before we close, we have a segment called Our Moments from the Valley. And this is a point in time where I'm going to ask you to share a time that you did not know how you were going to make it out of a particular situation. We would like to know what the situation was, how you made it out of it, and what was waiting for you on the other side. Well, I have to say that there is value in the valley. I do Mm -hmm. agree with that. The most challenging time of my life was just the time right before and during the pandemic. I just went through a divorce and the pandemic came uh, soon after and everything in the country had shut down, including surgeries. And I wasn't sure how was I going to be able to survive because as a surgeon, that's my primary income. And, um, and I had lots of opportunities to uh, grow during this process. And what that looked like was making sure that I'm diversifying my income stream. Mm -hmm. That meant uh, trimming the fat. So I went from two locations to one. That meant doing procedures and sat more procedures in my office than in the hospital itself. So there were many ways in which I had to pivot that involved just being more financially conservative but also more conservative with my mental and emotional health. Mm. So things that I thought matter, I realized it matter as much. And I spent more time with family and friends and more time at home because I realized if I was around someone, you could literally die. <laughs> so you better be worth my time. <laughs> <laughs> COVID lessons. <laughs> yes. I love it. I love it. And so like, how has that helped you on the other side of all of that? It certainly has helped me become a more savvy business owner, uh, but it also has helped me become a better person in the sense that I've learned to prioritize um, what is important in terms of adding uh, more time with people that have shared vision and shared values. Mm. Absolutely. I love that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your moment from the Valley. Um, I know that we both got to run and go get these children. (laughs) Yes. My son has called five times in the last five minutes. Like, Like, where you at? Where are you? Right. So um, before I let you go, can you please share some information of how people can get in contact with you, your social media, website, and some new things that are coming? I don't know if the BT Her is out already, but just some, what's on the horizon? Well, two um, main things that's on the horizon is I am I'm launching a breast supplement at Kentucky Derby <laughs> this year at a breast cancer event, but it's just uh, to support breast health. And that launches in May. And it's and it'll be available online at draprilspencer.com. And the TaylorMade Cosmetics is on our website, TaylorMadeCosmetics.online. And Instagram, you can follow us and keep it up with what we're doing with all the inspiration for breast health, the best health. And that's just at my name, which is at Dr. April Spencer. I love it. I love it. Well, you all please go out and support this amazing and beautiful Black woman who is doing amazing and beautiful things for the culture. And um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. 
it was a pleasure and it was honored to to be on your podcast and I am so proud of you and looking forward to seeing all the wonderful things you'll continue to do. Thank you, Dr. April Spencer. It's been wonderful. You're welcome. And to you at home, thank you for tuning in to The Woman Behind the Business. Um, Check out past broadcasts on our website. You can go to alivepodcastnetwork.com and download our app. We're available in both the Android and iOS app stores. And send us some emails with your questions, comments, show ideas. We are here for you. You can email us at support at alivepodcastnetwork.com. All right, that's the show for today. We look forward to seeing you same place, same time next week. A special thank you to our show producer, Shane Lewis, and our program director, Max Myrick. Until next time, stay blessed. You've been listening to The Woman Behind the Business with Angel Nicole. For more information or to hear previous episodes, click the Woman Behind the Business tab under programs at dcradio.gov.